0: It's very hard to know what's going on. If you're a regular person that has normal responsibilities, uh, it's a full-time job to be able to know what is going on, to to go through the New York Times and to try to sift through all that stuff and know that you're only getting half the story, and then go through uh, the social media platforms and go through there for hours. Uh, and so, in terms of like, how do we solve that problem? How do we actually get people informed? I think it's a it's a combination of being really selective and understanding what your audience is confused about, Mm -hmm. like what doesn't make sense to them. Because there's so many things happening and in the big events, like we hear uh, people talking about it if something happens and uh, there's usually so much context that is needed for those things to actually get a grasp of how Mm -hmm. that uh, came to be or how that's going to affect people. And so what we do is, first of all, we focus on what the New York Times and what outlets like those don't mention, right? Mm -hmm. So we're trying to find out, well, what are they ignoring here that's actually important? Mm -hmm. And the second thing is we try to cover what are they explaining here that actually makes no sense? Like, they're missing so much context. They do this on a regular basis. How can we fill in those gaps?
1: Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Surab Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week, it's just me. We just got out of this crazy, like, 48-hour-long meeting, and Nick told me that everything around us would collapse if I didn't do this episode by myself. So I obliged, and I'm very glad I did because I had an awesome time with our guest today, Ari David. I'll tell you more about him in a second, but before I do, this is probably the final week that you can sign up for our gala for American statecraft. This is our big third anniversary event we're doing here in Washington, D.C. on March 6th. We will feature Mark Meadows, President Trump's former chief of staff at the VIP reception. We'll have Senator J.D. Vance, founding board member of American Moment, giving remarks. And we will be honoring David Sachs with the Third Rail Award for Public Courage. This is honoring a philanthropist who has grabbed a hold of some third rail in American life. In his case, his principled stand on an America first foreign policy. We wanted to make sure that we're really elevating and honoring people who have taken the risks that it takes to speak out on those difficult issues. There's plenty of sponsorships available. Uh, Lots of people, I think over a dozen sponsors have already committed uh, ranging from the $5,000 level all the way up to the $100,000 level. So uh, your organization should definitely kick in for that. Come on, it's it's fine. I guarantee you have the money Uh, and you can also buy tickets. Uh, starting at $1,000 on our website. We're really looking forward to it. It's going to be a celebration of everything we've had thus far. It's not going to be like a typical rubber chicken dinner in Washington, D.C. It's really going to be an absolute blast. I believe our fellowship application for the summer is closed, so very sorry if you couldn't make it in, but I believe you can apply for a fall fellowship. So uh, it's a little touch and go. It's not super clear to me if we're going to have all the resources for a fall fellowship, but I'm going to try. It's partially why our gal is really important. So I think it's it's looking pretty good. We're going to have fall fellows this year. So be sure to kick in an application for that. We have AM Fridays. Our lunch series on Capitol Hill is going right now. You can uh, sign up for that and come to a series on the basics of how to think about the world the way we do on our website. That's AmericanMoment.org slash AM Fridays. And you can reach out to us at AmericanMoment.org slash join to Uh, come aboard this merry pirate ship and so that we can find a way to get you involved. Today, we had on a fantastic guest, a friend of American Woman, a sponsor of this podcast, funnily enough. We had on Ari David, who's the founder and uh, editor-in-chief of Upward News, a rapidly growing news outlet reaching millions of Americans a week or day. Uh, It's hard to say they're growing so fast. Ari's really quite fantastic. We've known him since he started. Uh, It used to be called Unwoke Narrative, and now it's called Upward News. And he's really, you know, a fellow startup entrepreneur, uh, helping fight the good fight alongside us. He's created this media outlet that is really doing something different. It's always been very arresting for me. The first time he explained it to me, he said, during the George Floyd riots, the Black Square crew on Instagram had a monopoly on the imagination of ill-informed young people, and there needs to be a competitor fighting toe-to-toe in that domain. And so he does. Go to Upward News on Instagram, and you'd be amazed at how much traction his posts get explaining in digestible ways an honest, serious narrative about the major crises facing the country. It's, it's really quite fantastic. We talked about How you go about starting a media company and all the challenges attendant with that, what it was like in those moments of crisis in these really hot news story environments like the Israel Hamas war, for instance, uh, what it's like to cover the news. We talked about tech censorship. How practically does tech censorship affect a news outlet that's trying to speak truth into these giant uh, platforms? And we also talked about why conservative media sucks and why they're uh, not behind the eight ball on the the, the really tricky questions facing the country and how to to speak to the American people. Uh, On our subscriber-only section, we talked about uh, what he's terrified about that no one else is paying attention to, what it's like to run a startup, and uh, what the most popular stories that Upward has covered – are as well. If you'd like to see this bonus segment, you can be a subscriber to this podcast on YouTube. We have our truther tier and our statesman tier. You get the entire episode a day early, uh, uh, beautiful 4k video and audio with these special questions. Uh, you get special perks in order uh, when it comes to a little flares on YouTube uh, and you get access to these bonus sections. So it really is worth it to help support this show. A bunch of you have signed up. It's really cool to see like congressional chiefs of staff and heads of organizations putting in their own resources to be subscribers to this show. It really just warms my heart. So thank you to everyone who's done it. Uh, we encourage many more of you to do so. If this podcast can get self-sustaining, that's, you know, X tens of thousands of dollars a year that Sarab can go use for other important things at American Moments. So it really would help uh, consider it uh, a small way to support American Moments' broader work. We'll go now to Ari David, and I highly encourage you to listen to the end because he really is an intelligent young feller and has a lot of interesting things to say about the media landscape we find ourselves in. We'll go now to Ari. Ari, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. We always like to hear about how our guests got to where they are. You are a young media entrepreneur, so tell us that story. How does one end up uh, screwing up the news and the pretensions of mainstream media on a daily basis? Tell us the tale.
0: Yeah, it's a great, great story. Um, A couple years ago, I would have never imagined that this is what I was going to be doing. About 16, 18 hours a day um, and thinking about even more than that. And so it all started pretty much right when I graduated out of college. It was the summer of 2020, the BLM ride summer. Uh, and if you were in college or you were right getting out of college at the time and all of your buddies and friends uh, were still in those liberal circles and you went on social media to check in on what was happening... It was a really radical place, and there were infographics that were being shared by the most political people, the least political people, people that really had no idea what they were actually resharing, but they were just doing it as a virtue signal, and so that's kind of when we had the black squares. Uh, The conversation was so radical at that time that people were trying to uh, use the opportunity to say why communism is actually better than capitalism. Like That was where the conversation was just a few years ago. And so I was seeing all that stuff. And growing up, I was never really political, um, never really thought that it was interesting, didn't really think that it changed much. And then when I got to college and I experienced the, the whole progressivism and the wokeism that was happening there, that's when I started paying attention um, as someone that was just inherently not political, seeing people that I grew up with that I knew getting so politicized in really, I think, non-logical ways. That's where were got you were at college. I was at University of Maryland. Okay. And so I saw this happening, and during that BLM summer, I realized that there's got to be a way to combat this. There's got to be a way to, in really a non-sensational way, just fact-based, being level-headed, try to talk to these people that... Don't really understand politics in the greater scheme, but are just resharing really harmful things. Uh, And that's kind of what we set out to do. So I created an Instagram page. I started creating these infographics. uh, And within a few months, I mean, we were getting tens of thousands of followers. It was just myself at the time. But clearly, people were hungry Uh, to look at this stuff without emotions without opinions they just kind of wanted to know what was going on and they wanted a way to share with their friends that already might be indoctrinated might be very political they wanted to show them something that uh, maybe wouldn't scare them off so that's kind of the the early story of upward news Uh, eventually we kind of left this uh, type of combative uh, and aggressive approach of trying to debunk everything that's being talked about in terms of ideological terms and realized that what we were actually doing was a form of journalism and we We're trying to figure out like, what's the broader story that's happening here? How can we convey the details that are important? And I realized it was more interesting to look at smaller stories and see the way that they're impacting society at large, rather than having uh, these big ideological debates. Give me an example of a smaller story. And so for example, uh, whenever there's these stories about uh, different liberal states, and they're adopting uh, different higher minimum wages, instead of arguing whether like these minimum wages and mandates are bad and looking at the the libertarian approach of things, it was more interesting to actually look at, well, what's happening in these states when they do uh, choose and elect these things? Are the prices getting more expensive? Are people losing their jobs? So instead of looking at this as an ideological battle where we're trying to prove whether libertarianism is good or communism is bad and those things just looking at the story and what's happening on the ground and kind of getting a real understanding of it was much more appealing for um, myself i think as someone that was trying to figure out uh, how the world worked and i did that through upper news through the reporting Uh, and so i think it appealed to a lot of people too that once we left out of that really polarizing moment People didn't want to talk about these large debates anymore. They really wanted to just kind of understand what was going on around them. How would you describe your audience? We have a really young audience on Instagram. Um, And Instagram is still the majority of the audience? It's the the largest uh, channel that we have. Yeah. And so the way that I would describe it is these people are like the top 1% in terms of news consumers they really know what's going on and so we'll have our articles go up on Instagram and we'll have people uh, comment like really uh, informational comments and point us to other places to look at and these are like young people and they're disenfranchised with uh, the New York Times of course like everyone almost is these days and they might look and they might follow those news sources but at the end of the day whenever they look at those they're skeptical and so then they go to us and see, well, what are we saying about it? And so that's kind of the way that we do uh, a lot of this stuff too, is we're trying to see what's everyone covering, what's the biggest institutions in the country covering, and then see what are they
1: missing. So I think that thing going to be very helpful to take this out of the realm of the abstract would be to talk about play-by-play how a media narrative forms. Right now, one of the biggest stories online that is generating almost as much squid ink, as the BLM riots did, is this war going on between Israel and Hamas. Paint me a story of how that went when October 7th uh, first happened. What did the narrative look like online to you, and how has it changed over time?
0: Yeah, well, one of the the key things to look at in terms of this conflict specifically, um, in contrast to the conflicts that came before it, I think now is X under Elon Musk, and so when this conflict happened, before anybody was even reporting on it, like the the X timelines and social media, like telegrams and the WhatsApps, all of those were flooded with firsthand accounts of what people saw from that day. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine that even under the old leadership, that something like that would be able to happen, knowing how fast that they can kind of cut information going. And if all people had to uh, rely on was the New York Times or uh, the Washington Post, I think the narrative would have been tremendously different from the beginning. But as a result of looking at all of this firsthand information directly, it didn't have to go through journalists. It didn't have to go through this process of these uh, mainstream journalists that say, we looked at all of the evidence so you don't have to, right? You saw it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Everyone saw it. Um, and so I think that the narrative has changed over time and over the weeks since the beginning. But that's how the, na- the conflict started was with the firsthand accounts that people saw. And, of course, uh, once that kind of fades away and it gets back to classical reporting and it's the big outlets that have the big stories first, it starts to change again. And there's a lot of ideological biases. And you have Al Jazeera that puts out its information, of course, with a certain bias. You have really big mess ups by outlets like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. I think the the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life is uh, the morning of after the supposed uh, hospital bombing, which Uh, They said killed like 500 people. Uh, The hospital wasn't even bombed. It was actually the parking lot. It's unclear if anybody even died, if there was tens or or dozens of them even. And the next morning, there were like three major newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, I forgot the other one, but they all had the front page, uh, Israeli airstrike, hospital bombing, hundreds killed, right? And that was incredible because it was an event that actually never happened. And so- you have clearly the mainstream media is trying to hold on to uh, holding the title of being the, the arbiters of truth and getting the story and being able to report what's going on. And then you have people uh, on X and what you would call citizen journalists. Uh, a couple of, uh, I think it was like 30 minutes after that started being reported, there were already people showing, by the way, guys, the story's like way off, right? Uh, and so it was on there it was on twitter or x from the beginning and then you have this competing uh battle going on between the mainstream outlets trying to still be the ones that get to decide what the story is and so it's been really interesting to look at the way that narratives are formed uh just in like the new
1: ecosystem that we have now so uh, the question that i always have whenever i talk about independent versus mainstream media with people is you know, what's the alternative, right? Because on both sides of the ledger, one, media consumers, there's a vanishingly small percentage of them that have the appetite to sort through hundreds of thousands of posts on X and figure out what ground truth is. And then on the flip side, um, you know, only mainstream well-funded outlets have the resources to direct people to cover every story or at least every story that's of interest to them as opposed to an independent journalist who might be in a place and you know get a video of something but can't you know get videos of everything um what do you make of that that core issue at the heart of 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 media and is How does independent media be more than just a peanut gallery complaining about something they could never embrace in terms of the larger responsibilities of a media ecosystem?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. That's kind of like one of the bigger reasons why we started kind of pivoting in the direction that we did. It's to simply put like... It's very hard to know what's going on. If you're a regular person that has normal responsibilities, uh, it's a full-time job to be able to know what is going on, to, to go through the New York Times and to try to sift through all that stuff and know that you're only getting half the story, and then go through uh, the social media platforms and go through there for hours. Uh, and so, in terms of like, how do we solve that problem? How do we actually get people informed? I think it's a it's a combination of being really selective and understanding what your audience is confused about, Mm -hmm. like what doesn't make sense to them. Because there's so many things happening. And in the big events, like we hear uh, people talking about it if something happens. And uh, there's usually so much context that is needed for those things to actually get a grasp of how Mm -hmm. that uh, came to be or how that's going to affect people. And so what we do is, first of all, we focus on what the New York Times and what outlets like those don't mention, right? Mm -hmm. So we're trying to find out, well, what are they ignoring here that's actually important? Mm -hmm. And the second thing is we try to cover... What are they explaining here that actually makes no sense? Like They're missing so much context. They do this on a regular basis. How can we fill in those gaps for our audience? And it's a really fun process. Back when I was writing a lot for Upward, um, this is really how like, I learned so much of the context of these stories. And for myself, it was just like a daily thing of research and going through and, and learning all of these things for
1: the first time. Is there an extreme light bulb moment that really stands out where you just saw a massive discrepancy between... The narrative as it was propagated and what you knew to be true
0: i think this goes back to like the 2020 moment Mm -hmm. like when we started all of this because there were so many stories that happened then that it was just like consistently and story after story we were lied to completely uh we could talk about george floyd we could talk about kyle rittenhouse right we could even get into uh later in the pandemic and and all of the the information about that the media wasn't uh i mean they were very late to cover they're now starting to cover like four years after the fact for the Mm -hmm. first time so I think like going through these really major stories, these, I don't know now, if you look back at it, I guess you would say these are um, culture war stories mm-hmm. uh, that we were completely lied to. Those are the light bulb moments mm-hmm. where you see that there's a whole side to the story and not even side, I would say actually most of the story, for example, with Kyle Rittenhouse just wasn't covered, mm-hmm. wasn't covered honestly. Uh, And so, again, like bringing back to the point of how citizen journalism right now is on the rise, it's hard to imagine that like stories like that would even be able to uh, thrive in like an environment like today. Because back then when we were talking about these stories, I I remember doing a lot of research on Kyle Rittenhouse, specifically what went down that night. We uploaded it to Instagram And I think like less than a day, Instagram had deleted the post. We were apparently uh, advocating for violence or however they wanted to uh, Mm -hmm. uh, explain that, which we weren't at all. We were just explaining the story. And so they censored all that stuff. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And today they would not, I don't think, be able to get with it. And not to forget, because I certainly don't when I'm using Magic Mind, uh, Use Magic Mind. Uh, if you drink coffee every day, if you're a DC professional managerial class person who is constantly over caffeinated and need to even out a little bit, I've been a huge fan of Magic Mind lately. These little green shots are full of all the incredible stuff that uh, you should be having. If I just read this ingredient list out: matcha, green tea, agave, passion fruit, olive oil, ashwagandha, uh, rhodiola rosea. Cital- it's just it's it's incredible ingredients that I can barely pronounce, but all natural stuff that really what it does is it evens out those Highs and lows you get when you consume caffeine, and it gives you even secure focus through the day. Uh, it's really been fantastic for me with this travel schedule I keep and everything to be uh, taking this every day with my caffeine. Uh, if you'd like to get some at a discount, you can go to Magic Mind's website and put in the promo code Truth Twenty, and that will give you a percentage off so that you can enjoy it as well. Once again, that's Magic Mind is these little green shots that help even out your focus for the day. Truth Twenty is the promo code. Thank you to magic mind. So I, I have a lot of questions about how text censorship actually works because I sometimes have a hard time looking at someone complaining about text censorship on X. And when you dive in and actually ask the hard questions, they're like, well, my post is not getting as much likes as it should. And it's like, okay, you kind of sound like you're being goofy. Uh, I'm not saying that's the case in, in your case, peel back the curtain, you're running a media outlet that actually has a large following. You have the you have a long uh, data set of time to look at. What practically on each platform does tech censorship actually look like and how does it impact your business and your ability to propagate the news? Yeah, it, it's a really good
0: question. It affects pretty much every single media business out there, I would say, except for the ones that are liberal. So our biggest platform is Instagram. That's the one I have the most mm-hmm. experience with in understanding censorship. And I think Instagram is probably the most quintessential one in understanding how that censorship works because there's so many different factors at play. And so it breaks down into, I think, two categories. The first is algorithmic censorship. And so the algorithms are crazy. Um, they are able to change them to be able to suppress certain kinds of information. We saw this a lot with the pandemic where... If you were to write posts about vaccine, Instagram would scan the caption. It would take the image, put it through OCR, see if you have any word uh, vaccine in there. And if it did, the algorithm would kind of make a prediction and see if it's like uh, in support of vaccines or anti-vaccines. And based on that, they would either show it to people or they wouldn't. Uh, Then they would actually affect your whole account. So if you just started talking about vaccines and then posted something completely different than that, you still wouldn't get any reach. So that's like one way I think that still happens a lot, the algorithmic side. The second side is like this human interaction where you have these like global organizations. People talk about these all the time, uh, the fact checkers, and they hire these people and they go through Instagram posts and things online. Uh, And I guess in in coordination with like outlets like the Associated Press and all of those uh, like Business Insider, some of those, um, they write these stories and say, well, this is what they're saying and this is why it's wrong. And These like journalists at the Associated Press and people that work with like the fact checkers, they have the ability to go into uh, the Instagram posts and be able to like censor it themselves. Like we've had this happen where our Instagram posts get censored because some Associated Press writer wrote that this was false. What story was that? It, ha- it happened so many times. Mm-hmm. The last time it actually happened was like three weeks ago. So this mm-hmm. is like still happening. Mm-hmm. We wrote about uh, the migrant crisis in New York City. There was a school that had temporarily shut down because of a combination of like the, the migrants and having to put them there and like a storm, something like that. And the Associated Press, it was this author that has like repeatedly looked at our account and tried to flag us before. And so they said something that we proved to them via email, like, this is wrong what you guys are saying clearly this doesn't add up and like within a couple minutes they responded okay you're right we removed the the flag there we removed the censorship so like I've never seen the terminal that they use. I've never seen like whatever software they have that connects to Instagram, but like these people have free reign to just decide
1: what uh mm. what goes out through uh into the social media and, world and what are the couple of buckets of prime targets in terms of censorship? You mentioned covid vaccines is a major one what What are the other places where you know that if you put something out there that even slightly deviates from the party line you're getting a a hammer
0: so uh I'll, give, I'll tell you this in like through a story. Mm-hmm. So when the migrant crisis started kind of getting much worse and much harder to ignore, it started going on the New York Times uh, front pages and all of that. The Biden administration had pretty much run like a journalism 101 class for a lot of these journalists. They talked with them. They talked to them about how to cover these issues, how to co- talk about e- the economy, right? Because that was something that the Biden administration was really worried about. And so when you have like this kind of coordination and the federal government is talking to outlets and trying to help them uh, cover things correctly, these outlets can then just cover these through their fact checks. And so what I've noticed is that a lot of the times whenever uh, the Biden administration is worried about some specific issue that is really hurting their poll numbers, uh, whenever the uh, media starts to defend them, they also defend them through authoring fact checks. And so that actually just ends up censoring whatever issue is problematic for them, uh, the migrant crisis being a great example.
1: Got it. when they go about flagging these posts do they get removed entirely does your account get injured in some way practically speaking how does this affect uh the audience growth and the platform growth with your posts yeah it depends
0: i've seen accounts go completely under uh, in terms of like being banned never be able to access Mm -hmm. that again that happened to us on twitter back during the early days of the jack dorsey reign um what story caused that I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. It was just one day uh, we were posting on Twitter. We had good growth on there. And then the account was suspended forever, permanently. So that was kind of it. You never know. Like, uh, one of the things that I think people don't talk about as much is these social media companies have like no customer support. If you want to get in touch with somebody there, you will never. And they have such a massive responsibility for speech in this country, and nobody could even talk to them. I think it's crazy for uh, a society that has always tried to make like businesses more accountable towards people and uh, be able to be better, I guess, in a way that nobody has ever thought. Maybe Facebook should have customer support. Like There's crazy stories that people report on uh, about people impersonating them and really damaging things, and nobody can ever get a hold of these companies.
1: Um, When your Twitter account got banned, did did you get it back eventually under Elon's reign? No. How did that work? No, we never got it back. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Um, I've seen a claim floating around that just by him making Twitter a more free speech friendly platform through his ownership, that it has caused an effect across all social media where everyone is actually cooling down a little bit on how much... And how aggressively they're censoring content. Is that true? It does feel like
0: that in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like what he's created is a free market where his product is now superior than every other product mm-hmm. because people can go on there and they know that they're not gonna get censored. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they have like these two other options. They can mm-hmm. go on Facebook, they can go on Instagram, but they can't really talk about everything. Um, and so now like Elon Musk's ask, X is just a better product uh, inherently by what it's designed to do. Mm-hmm. And so the other ones, I think, in terms of competition, In the meantime, they're going to compete. But as we've already seen, there's a lot of pressure on X, uh, especially from the European Mm -hmm. Union. The election is coming up. It's going to be incredibly important. I don't even need to mention that. And having free speech on X is a serious liability for the Democratic Party, as seen in 2020, when um, a lot of things that affected that election were due to censorship Mm -hmm. on those platforms. And so they're going to try to figure out how they can... uh, hit the weak spots of X. And there certainly are a lot of them. So just to answer your question, yes, in in the short term, I think that it is kind of relieving a lot of the censorship in other areas. Uh, But in terms of long term, I I think they're going to figure out what to
1: do about that. Yeah. Going back to the Israel-Hamas war as as a synecdoche to understand the situation. Um, It actually seemed like on October 7th that the online narrative was largely trending uh, in in a pro-Israel direction, recognizing the atrocities that that the terrorists had committed. Uh, But that's obviously rapidly changed since. Give me a play-by-play of how exactly that happened and, and what platforms it happened through. So we'll
0: start from the beginning. Like, yes, that narrative was set from the start because of just how crazy the content, the firsthand accounts were. Uh, there was no censorship. People were getting it. They were seeing it um, just in terms of what happened that day. Um, unless you are like a vehemently uh, pro-Palestine and you have been your whole life, it's very hard to kind of distort that situation uh, for political gain. And so, yeah, that's how it started out in terms of how it's changed so much. um, I I think the fact is it's a war and you can point to whatever side of a war you want to and show here's the death, here's the suffering, even if it's on both sides. I think it's natural that there's a a lot of people that have their own agendas at play. Uh, They want to specifically highlight about suffering that is happening in Gaza or for the Palestinians. And if that's all you focus about, just bias by omission will be enough uh, to kind of skew the narrative. If you look at like all of the Arab countries, for example, a lot of them don't even know the extent of like October 7th. They're just always going to support that side. And they have a lot of sway. Uh, they have like the Al Jazeera's of the world that really propagate their narrative. Uh, they focus on all of that. Um, and then in this country, you have a lot of people that are progressive, and they align with the Palestinian cause. And so... It's kind of like a BLM effect. I think there's a lot of similarities here in terms of the way that you look at the posts on social media. They're incredibly one-sided. They're purely political. And that's on Instagram, that's on uh, Twitter, or sorry, X, and that's also on TikTok. There's a lot of young people on TikTok. It's very progressive. uh, And going on there and just like seeing one side of the war, I think it's natural for people to think that it's one side is wrong, one side is right,
1: uh, especially when that's being what's fed to them. Yeah in washington we had this scene over the last couple of weeks where a bunch of boomer politicians have basically started trotting out these stats of you know the second someone goes on tiktok they become 17 percent more anti-semitic it's it it all sounds kind of hokey but i i think the the core point that these social media platforms are radicalizing people in a particular direction seems right um What's your view of it? Are these platforms putting their thumb on the scales in favor of a particular view? And is that what's causing uh, this to propagate this way? Or or is it because of the appetites that consumers of the news have on these platforms? Who's actually to blame here? I think it's a few things. So first of all, these algorithms will always
0: put the most polarizing things at the top. That's just what people want to see that people want to see things that are extreme that are crazy Uh, it creates a human connection for them through opinion Mm. um, and all of the sorts and so the more slanted and biased uh, the information is that you're putting out online the more of that human uh, emotion that it elicits the better it's going to do via the, the algorithms in terms of like the putting a thumb on the scale thing though i think that's a real concern for tiktok Uh, we don't really know anything about how that process works. We know that uh, the people that own the company are not necessarily friendly to American uh, ideas and traditions. And so that's a real possibility that there's kind of something going on in the background. We know that, I mean, it even happens here in America for political reasons too. So uh, algorithms can for sure be manipulated, have been in the past. Are you guys on TikTok? No. Okay. We should Uh, be. Is that a point of principle? No, it's not. Uh, it's, a, it's a resource thing. And mm-hmm. so, w- the way that we look at it is we have such little resources. We're really like a scrappy startup here. And we want to focus on a few things and do them really well rather than branching out and focusing on many things and messing them up and not putting together a cohesive uh, and good product to give to our readers. Mm-hmm. And so, for sure, it's on the roadmap. I think if we had the resources right now to be on TikTok, mm-hmm. we would. It's not a matter of principle. Mm-hmm um, for us, we got to reach our audience. We got to get them Mm. good content. We're doing that via Instagram right now. And also our newsletter, which is like, people love it. They don't have to fight with algorithms for that. Um, they go there and it's really relieving for the whole entire team knowing that if we write something fantastic, we do it on a daily basis that our readers are going to see it. Whereas like you can't build a business on social media, specifically a media one, Mm. because you have no guarantee that, you're ever going to even reach your readers, even if they want to be reading your stuff. Like, it's just not up to you. So... We've kind of pivoted in some ways uh, for the sole purpose of being able to reach our readers.
1: Have you not seen any way that the email companies are able to put their thumb on the scales? I know that political fundraisers will talk all the time about how Gmail is sending a lot of Republican fundraising emails to spam, at least partially, I assume, because uh, they are. But um, yep. that th- there there are systemic complaints that there uh, are heavy biases to send certain stuff to the junk folder or to non-important folders uh, for right-wing newsletters or right-wing uh email blasts as compared to left-wing ones have you noticed that so there's a lot of spam problems with
0: email in general um i have heard of this i've read about it i've never experienced it myself or been able to even measure if that's actually happening Mm -hmm. but the one thing that i'll say is that email has been around for quite some time now like much longer than Facebook or Instagram. And so I think people look at email similarly to how they look at the post mail, right? That comes to you in your mailbox. Like they look at that as like, this is a regular way to communicate with people, like text messaging, like it's just a right at this point. Uh, they don't look at Instagram and Twitter the same way. It is totally possible that Gmail and Google and uh, Yahoo and all of them can decide to start messing with the emails and start censoring through there. If they did that, that's a really big, that would be a really big problem for a lot of people, I think. That's like, I think, rocking the boat to a serious extent. I mean, it's crazy because in the beginning of like the 2020 uh, round of censorship, censorship, it, it was crazy to realize that I was trying to say something and I couldn't. Like, there was just mouth over my tape. Uh, we got desensitized to that. Like four years later, we talk about censorship casually. Like, this is just a way of life. I think that's absurd. The fact that living in a country with the Constitution that we have and we don't even have free speech to some extent anymore uh, and we're just kind of used to it. So it could get worse. I think it probably will get worse unless uh, some people decide to, I don't know, protect protect the freedom of speech here.
1: Yeah, You mentioned earlier that a lot of news consumers look for the most polarizing content possible. I want you to explain a little bit more about what you've learned about your audience in particular, you don't have to generalize it and their news habits. Like what are the things they are interested in and how tightly correlated are they to the things that you think matter? Or have you reframed your psychology to say what matters is what they're interested in? Yeah,
0: that's a really interesting question. Um, when we choose what stories we want to write about We're trying to, we're trying to pretend like we're the audience, like what would we want to read about? Uh, If there's like something happening on Capitol Hill and it's been happening for like two months, it just like every week there's a little update, like to a certain extent, like we know our readers might just not even want to read a whole story on that. Like I personally get uh, jaded about that stuff. I probably don't want to read about it. So that's like one thing. Um, The second is like we interact with our readers. We tell them to reach out. We get so many responses via Instagram comments, via emails, uh, and they tell us what they're interested in. They say, hey, can you cover this? Uh, When we do cover stories, we have polls in our emails. So we ask them, what do you think about this? And we read those responses and we get a sense of, okay, this was like really helpful to our readers. Maybe this one was not as helpful. And so I think my psychology at this point is like totally um, trying to figure out what the readers are interested in. Um, And that did kind of start from what I myself was interested in as like an outsider that didn't have uh, the most advanced political knowledge when I started all this stuff. So when I look at things and I'm like, huh, how does that work? I don't even know anything about that. I can assume for the most part, a lot of people in America probably have that same exact question. So that's the way we we tackle it.
1: Yeah. Give me some of the the large buckets of stories that are interesting to your readers based on the metrics you have that people might be surprised by or, or think are unexpected there's,
0: there's a lot of like these smaller parts of stories that I think people are really interested in. So for example, when we're talking about, um, uh, NGOs and how they affect different things, I think now people are so used to like hearing about hearing like the word NGO where mm-hmm. maybe like a decade ago, they weren't. And there's really a long history of the way that NGOs work with governments and how they're able to change societies and that's like one thing, like I don't think the New York Times is going to write an article about uh, the way that NGOs are able to uh, disrupt regular uh, governmental like elections and things like that. And so we cover those things and we say, well, what is an NGO? What's like the, the background of NGOs? Uh, have they done this before? And so recently we did this with uh, the migrant crisis, and so looking at it through the lens of what are like the, the nonprofits and the NGOs that are actually making this 10 times worse on purpose? And that's interesting to people, kind of uh, taking a small part of that story, really zooming in and trying to uh, answer a question that we ourselves are curious about. Why do you think that's so interesting to them? Because it's a really big part of, to the puzzle of how things in this country and in the world work at this mm-hmm. point. Like if you don't know what an NGO is, uh, there's going to be a lot of questions mm-hmm. when you try to break down uh, why is there so much turmoil in like Europe, in Israel, and all mm-hmm. of these uh, liberal democracies, right? You You kind of have to go back to those things. And I don't think people talk about this in like casual conversation, but it's still really interesting. And so finding exactly like those, I guess, pressure points of you might not know about this, this is super interesting. And it's also really important,
1: people like that. Yeah. I have a theory about this. Tell me if you think it's right. Part of the reason why people might be interested in something like uh, you know, the NGO influence over the migrant crisis is because the media people consume is partially related to how they think of themselves and how they define themselves. And so being a connoisseur of this small part of a story that explains so much more of the story than the general public might know about is a form of narcissism is too strong a word but is a form of patting oneself on the back and saying i i know something that most people don't i am clued into a detail that most people don't understand and so finding a detail like that finding a thing that people can latch on to that gives them a sense that they have an edge uh, over the general public is satisfying to them and and will always be popular and that is partially how ever more niche content creates an audience for itself over time you think this is true yeah
0: i think so i mean the 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 reason that uh, people still buy newspapers is uh, because they they want to have an edge over people. Mm-hmm. Like it is at the end of the day a competition to stay informed. Some people are trying to stay informed for I guess the reason of knowing more than the guy next to them, being able to sound smart at like a, a dinner party or something like that. Um, and then there's other people that want to know want to stay informed because that's could be a life or death situation, right? Uh, so you can make proper financial decisions, so you can send your kids to the right school, so you can vote for the right people. Uh, to to elect to the government right so there's really good reasons that i think are um not like more of that selfish like i just want to be smarter but mm. I, I people want to understand the way that the world works and they don't want to they don't want to be late to trends that could uh really affect them big picture what are the the big
1: thematic things that are really popular with your audience
0: uh, in terms of just uh, stories stories yeah there, there's a lot of them and we're constantly kind of uh changing what we're covering based on what's going on in the news but um, one of the big things we've been covering for like the better part of a year is what's going on globally and like geopolitically the changes that Europe is going through the different geopolitical ties uh, that are being transformed under the Biden administration right there's there's so many things that are happening um, and I, I think our readers really like to see That there's different countries that are kind of dealing with similar problems in America and to see what they're doing. I think um, like that Freedom Convoy story a couple years ago, uh, the truckers in Canada, and now you have the truckers all over Europe. And uh, at one point you even had truckers in America. And so there really is this really large trend that we try to cover uh, pretty often in terms of updates and keeping our readers informed of what's happening in all these countries because it's nice to feel that, you know, we're not alone. We're not the only country in the world that has these set of problems. So that's one thing. Uh, We like to cover a lot of government corruption and the stories and the Hunter Biden evidence and all of those things. um, Those kind of fit into the category of stories that are not only not covered in the mainstream media, but when they're covered by like regular traditional conservative media, it's highly confusing. Like, I, I don't think they really try to go step by step in an objective way and try to get down to the bottom of here's what we know. Here's how we got here. Here's the ramifications of it. And when you have like updates to the Hunter Biden story or the Biden family, Uh, every few weeks, it's really hard to keep track of where are we now? Like this story has been happening for such a long time. Does it even matter? Like has anything even come from this? And so we look at that and I look at it I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of lost too. Let's cover that again. Let's uh, go back to the basics. Let's catch our readers up. So what we think is interesting and we think is, is important is what we report on and uh, our audience likes the fact that we're not like the New York times or the wall street journal where we have hundreds of articles per day. We have two or three, right? We keep it very selective and uh, we kind of decide on what actually matters here. And people appreciate that because if I give someone like um, a print copy of the wall street journal every day for a week and they have to read through the whole thing i don't know if they feel more informed or less informed like that's a lot of information a lot of it is fluff a lot of it doesn't actually matter whereas we kind of just limit it what you're getting from us does matter it's not everything that's happening in the world but this stuff does matter and it's going to help you stay informed that's kind of the the approach there
1: Yeah. Talk to me about why conservative media sucks. I want you to take as broad a view as possible, then drill down into the specifics, because the problem that you're trying to solve is the golden grail of problems that a lot of conservative media outlets sell themselves on trying to solve. We're informing young people. We're countering the narrative. I mean, you used to be called unwoke narrative. I mean, this is gravy for a lot of these outlets. Why are they bad at doing what they've set out to do? I think that it happens from the way
0: that they look at themselves. Like when they look at the liberal media and then see themselves as conservative media, they're inherently putting them in a position themselves in a position where they're always going to be reacting and just following what the other side is doing and trying to constantly I don't know debunk that stuff or att- attack that stuff. And that's not really how important journalism is kind of put together. I think uh, important journalism is about being inquisitive about the world, uh, asking the right questions, covering the right stories, and not just responding to what the other side of the aisle is saying. And so uh, most of the writers at Upward News, they're, they're conservative. We don't
1: really look at ourselves as a conservative outlet. Like our goal is literally just to inform our readers. Hey, but like, it, like I, so I, I take what you're saying, and that, that makes a lot of sense. But. Come on, like, okay, all your writers are conservatives. You're you're writing with that perspective. Like, what's the actual difference then in in core approach that that you know you deviate? You're like your branding doesn't look like, you know, red, white, and blue, you know, boomer bald eagle, squaw. Like, you know, it's 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 cleaner, but but very practically, how does that inform the way you talk about the news? Well, it, it Impacts the stories that we choose to cover, okay. right? And so, what, the
0: stories that we think are important are, of course, that's totally biased, right? We can write the most like objective article, but the fact that we decided to even write about that article, there's a bias in that. It's a, G-
1: examples it's, of that being stuff like the Hunter Biden controversies, exactly, right? or like, the fact that there is a migrant <laughs> crisis,
0: exactly. And but then when we actually write those stories and we get into them, we're not trying to write it from any kind of moral position. We're not trying to include like our personal biases in there. Um, none of the writers are allowed to put. Any any opinions of theirs into the stories. And the goal is we have to include everything that is important in the story because why would we make it so that we only have part of the story? Like that's just kind of going back to the whole like censorship Twitter thing. That would create a bad product if for our readers to actually know what was going on, they would have to go to the New York Times to read what they're saying and then compare Upward News and the New York Times and say, now when I put all these together, now I kind of get it. We, we want to avoid that. We want to have an actual full product here. And so sometimes that means uh, incorporating uh, parts of a story that conservative media ignores because they've taken a really pro-Trump position, for example, and they don't want to repeat a couple quotes or things like that. So um, we're not trying to uh, convince our audience how to think. I think actually conservative media a lot of the times falls into this trap where instead of like talking to their audience, they're talking at them.
1: We're trying to just inform our audience. Yeah. What else uh, is wrong with conservative media? You talked about, you know, the specific sort of editorial perspective, but in terms of the forms and the strategies they take in terms of propagating uh, the news, uh, whether it's the the media they choose uh, and, uh, and and other tactics, what's wrong with it? What do they get wrong? I think a way to
0: look at this is look at like the audiences and the demographics that they're reaching. The traditional conservative media is not very aesthetically pleasing. I think in terms of like the quality of the writing itself, it's not that good. It doesn't go through such a thorough thorough editorial process. The writers that are writing it are not the best writers in the world. They might be okay reporters, but uh, the quality there drops. And when they're reaching an older segment uh, that might not mind about those things then it's fine. Like, that that probably does the job and it, it keeps people informed to a certain extent. But the younger generation, I mean, they grew up, uh, if they grew up not political at all, that means they grew up seeing, like, all the liberal outlets, which have absolutely nailed down the aesthetics. Uh, in terms of, like, writing quality, like the New York Times, I don't think it gets better than that. Like, the writers there and their sentences and... Everything that they write is just beautiful despite being completely biased in so many ways and missing really important parts of the story. Um, And so I don't think there are – I I probably couldn't even count a few conservative outlets that are really trying to put out really solid work that could compete on that level. Uh, We're so scrappy. We're not even there yet, obviously. But the goal is to be able to put together and get the best writers in the world um, and have really phenomenal journalism that – isn't always like reactionary,
1: but we see something important and we report about it. Yeah. Talk to me specifically about the discrepancy between, I mean, a lot of conservative media is takes mongering, you know, it's writing 600 word op-eds and calling that journalism. Why does it matter to you to not be an opinion outlet at this stage?
0: Yeah. This goes back to when we were starting Upward and the way that I was looking at things. I never had any interest in going to read like op-eds. They didn't really help me understand like a story because I, I wasn't looking to be told how to th- think about something or being like opinionated about it. I wanted to just kind of get the facts of the story. I wanted to know what was going on. Um, if I was still confused and I didn't make up my own mind about it, maybe I'll check, well, what are these people saying about it? But they never really helped me understand the situation. I think sometimes like intellectual op-eds, they're pretty useful in terms of thinking outside the box and like challenging yourself. And so it's, it's could be used that way. But in terms of like people RH, age that kind of want to just get informed, they, they don't want to read columns by people that are like triple their age, right? They just kind of want to get the story and they want to move on. Uh, so I think based on like the age, it's like a big difference of what they want. If they're on Instagram, it's impossible to fit a column in there. You know what I mean? Um, and so short form
1: content right now is king. Yeah. Do you think that that's a, an endless, uh, race to the bottom? Like is content just going to have to get more and more and more and more distilled? Like I, I grew up on the YouTube video essay generation and now are people getting their education from, you know, one minute TikToks and is it going to get even, uh, smaller and shorter from there? I mean, isn't something lost when you're constantly chasing that information density high? Yeah, it's a big problem. Um, you know, tiktok for
0: the longest time i don't know what the the video length was when they first launched uh but since then it has only gotten longer like the limit so that's a good sign i think Mm -hmm. whatever they figured out is that maybe people do want a three-minute video which is good that it's trending in the other direction Mm -hmm. uh i think social media has like
1: incredibly it's also easier to put ads in a three-minute video okay there you go 15 second one that's Um.
0: probably why then but yeah there's there's this trend of going for this shorter form content it affects focus like tremendously like if if you're all day looking at uh, your twitter timeline and reading these things that are like 120 characters and then going to try to read a book for like even 20 minutes like your brain just can't even handle it so i think that we're going to be rethinking the way that social media impacts our brains i think like the generation hopefully the next generation kind of catches on that maybe this isn't the best thing for us and we should have uh like dietary restrictions on uh you shouldn't be on twitter this long today or on instagram and uh, maybe you should read things that are a little bit longer and train your focus so i hope like down the road we kind of go back to that uh but you're right in this point in time where social media has never been ever more utilized uh the shorter the content the easier it is for people to get it um that's the difference though I, i is that it's a limit to what you can even get out of that short form content. Uh, a lot of the times that's why it is so opinionated and so biased because if you have time for like a couple words, they're not going to be objective. Uh, but that's where the opportunity is, I think, to find st- and meet our readers halfway. Like we're not putting you through like a 3000 word article. It's only 250 words, mm-hmm. a little longer than a tweet, uh, a little longer than
1: like an Instagram, like slide post and stuff, but you'll learn a lot from this. Mm-hmm. What's the most unexpected thing you've learned about, media having done it yourself a thing that people a lot of people misunderstand about what it's like to actually operate a media business uh or just something that that you didn't expect going into all of this i learned something
0: every day <laughs> like that, that's the kind of like first of all going into a field that i had no knowledge about nothing media in my background ever before this uh and then also running a business and so making mistakes and figuring it out i think one of the, the biggest realizations that i had recently was We try to be as objective as we can, actually, in the writing itself. Um, And I found that even though a lot of readers appreciate this, because there is no human connection that we Mm -hmm. form through opinions, the bond between us and readers are weaker. And so you kind of have to figure out a way to develop that relationship with your readers and your audience uh, without having to sacrifice what we're trying to accomplish right and so uh the substack writers for example really really uh liberal ones or really really conservative ones they absolutely have no problem with getting paid subscriptions because whenever they put something out and it's just uh their full opinion on something and, and it's just who they are They develop a strong relationship with the readers. Those readers are fine to go ahead and support them because there's a connection there. When you're trying to write something that is more so objective, you're restraining yourself, which, in a way, like psychologically, it's I'm not giving the readers all of my thoughts. Like I'm actually pulling back on purpose. And so that does kind of create a wall there, I think, whenever outlets do try to be. Objective. So even the New York Times, they have trouble maintaining their paid subscriptions whenever they try reporting things that maybe their audience doesn't like or being more objective in that regard. Um, So learning about like psychology, uh, the way to develop relationships with with readers, being able to create things that people want to consume. Mm -hmm. um, There's a lot of surprises along the way, but uh, just kind of tying this into recent like media and business events. I think we all heard about like The Messenger, which raised $50 million about a year ago. And their goal was to return to this gold standard of objective news reporting um, that both sides of the aisle could read. And after a year, they shut down. And it's kind of, they forgot that that kind of media, like people don't develop a relationship with it. They don't like it. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And so it's it's a lot of tough lessons like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, going to the business model side of it, I'll use a different industry as as a proofing ground for this. In television, for instance, it used to be the case that it was largely supported by advertisements. And then as the streaming services came around people were paying these subscription fees to get everything without advertisements. And now you see that people are tired of having all these subscriptions and things are going back towards advertising. So something similar in newspapers, right? You had the classified section, that's what funded it. The paper was a dollar or less. And now, uh, and, then, and then people started getting all these subscriptions and now the subscription fatigue is starting to hit and now people are looking for advertisements again. If you had to guess, what's the future of media? Is it Substack, highly loyal audiences that are willing to pay or mass market advertisement supported media. Obviously it's going to be both, but where do you think the, the median point's going to be? It's a really great question. Um, I would
0: say the answer is that it's going to lean towards centralization in one way and Mm -hmm. decentralization in another. And what I mean by that is I think that there's going to be a few really large organizations like the New York Times. Like that company is becoming a monolith in its size. And it's very successful, too, at this point. It's never been this big. Um, And the companies and the media outlets in the middle they just don't have the ability to be able to sustain that work with those margins. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have layoffs, the LA Times, the Washington Post. I think those types of outlets are going to go downward and shrink more or they're going to uh, meet the New York Times at the top where there's going to be a few of them. And I think at the bottom, what we're going to have is um, a lot of independent uh, news outlets and different ways to get your news. And those ones will probably be uh, a hybrid model where there's paid subscriptions and there's advertising. Advertising will never be reliable, I think, especially uh, where they're just competing with Uh, like Google and then Facebook and Meta trying to uh, compete with them for for ad dollars. So that's always going to be tough. Uh, I think news outlets right now are figuring out that that's actually really not a great way to build your business. They're starting to get into the paid subscriptions and we're hitting the fatigue. And so you got to convince your readers that your subscription is worth it. You know, they might be subscribed to a couple of other things and Netflix and Hulu and that stuff, but they need to supplement that because you're offering something that they actually want. So the people that have the best products, the people that have the, the most important journalism, uh, whether they're really small and just a few people that are focusing on one thing that's important um, or the massive organizations like the New York Times that are just going to be uh, – I don't even know what that's going to look like in another decade. But they're only going to get bigger and they're going to be continuously – like the record of paper covering everything, everything, everything. Um, and you'll probably have a combination of both that Thrive.
1: Yeah. I want to talk about a bunch of other topics, specifically uh, what it is that you are paying attention to that no one else is, that you're terrified about, what some of the most popular stories at Upward have been, and also what it's like to run a young media startup. But that is going to be exclusively for our paid subscribers on YouTube. For those of you who haven't seen this yet, we have a new paid subscription program on YouTube. You can be either a truther or a statesman uh, that are each at like, I think five bucks and ten bucks respectively. And you can get these bonus sections that we're taping with each of our guests where we let our hair down a little bit and ask some more spicy questions. Um, you get the full episode a whole day early. You can watch it on Sundays after church whenever you're you know, golfing or whatever you might like. And you get access to other special member perks on YouTube. So be sure to go and subscribe to be either a truther or a statesman so you can hear Ari and all of our other guests amazing answers to our most interesting questions. So we're grateful as always this week to bring you this episode in partnership with upward.news upward.news is a fantastic political news website run by our friend Ari Uh, their daily brief brings you need to know news and insights that you won't find in the mainstream media they've put out fantastic content on instagram on twitter and many other platforms sign up for their newsletters at upward.news you know even with political insiders, many of whom listen to this this show. It's helpful to have people who can collate the most important news items happening uh, across the world every single week. And Ari does that with his various newsletters at Upward.News. Once again, that's Upward.News. Thank you so much for helping bring Moment of Truth to our audience. Ari, how can people keep up with everything that you're doing at Upward and follow you wherever they can?
0: Yeah, well, the best place to go to is (laughs) IHateFakeNews.com. It's a a lovely domain that we purchased. Uh, It's memorable. And so you go there put in your email, you'll start getting all of our email updates. Uh, and I know that you will love the content. And we respond to every single person. I personally respond to every single person that emails us back and responds and stuff. So uh, please feel free to do that with any questions, with any feedback requests. Uh, we're trying to build a, a community of people that want to get the truth and want to know what's going on. And so that's the best way to kind of keep in touch with, with our journey here. What are the handles on social media? Uh, on Instagram, it is
1: Upward News, and on Twitter, it is, or X, it is Upward News HQ. All right, folks, that's your challenge, is uh, start bothering Ari as much as humanly possible by responding to the post that he sends out so that he has to respond back to you. Ari, thank you for everything that you do. Congratulations on all the fantastic success, and thank you for coming on the podcast. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly did. Thank you again to Upward News for all their support of the podcast. Thank you to Magic Mind. Uh, as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. Sign up for the gala for American Statecraft. I know it's pricey, but come on, you guys are good for it. A lot of you people in DC have expense budgets and stuff to buy tickets to gala. So let's see some sponsorships. Let's see some ticket sales. It's basically the last week you can do so. So be sure to check it out sooner rather than later. That's AmericanMoment.org slash gala. Sign up for AM Fridays, our lunch series on Capitol Hill. Uh, we've got lots of fantastic speakers. For this spring, we'll be running it for ten weeks, uh, starting uh, this previous Friday, from when this episode dropped. And uh, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org/join. Get off your couch, get involved with us. If you want to find a job here in DC, it's our job to help you get it. Don't wait until the presidential administration starts and roll up and be like, "I'd like to be ambassador to Mexico." No, you have to start out at the bottom, and we'll find a way to get you started, accelerate your career, so that you can one day be ambassador to Mexico or whatever your big hopes and dreams are. Thank you guys as always for listening. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube become a member, a truther or a statesman so that you can get this episode a whole day early and get the bonus content and be sure to rate and review this podcast on Spotify, Apple podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, because it really does help us. Thank you again to the thousands of you that listen every week. It's always a pleasure. We'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment podcast taped at the Conservative Partnership Campus Studios and is produced by Jake Mercier, Jared Cummings, Tiffany Kutris, and Matthew Pearson. Our intro song is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich, and our website is AmericanMoment.org.